Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S.com, code SUPER24. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. In this episode, I sit down with Bruce Friedrich, the executive director of the Good Food Institute and founding partner of New Crop Capital. Bruce has had a long career working at nonprofits like PETA and Farm Sanctuary and is now shifting his focus away from direct animal rights activism to the plant-based and clean protein space. When it comes to understanding the future of food, there are few people who know more than Bruce. In our conversation, he explains how GFI is working with scientists across the plant-based protein and clean meat space and discusses the challenges and opportunities in both sectors. Based on his projections and experience, Bruce believes we are very close to a future where meat will be made without animals. To hear more about who is leading the innovation in this space and how the future is being formed right now, you'll have to keep listening. I'm with Bruce Friedrich, um, Executive Director of the Good Food Institute. Thank you, Bruce, for being with us today. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me, Nell. Thanks. Um, let's start off with the background. Let's start off with the backstory about the Good Food Institute. How did this amazing new organization come about, and how has it managed to do what appears to be so much already within such a short time frame? Tell us a little bit more about the backstory. Sure. So the Good Food Institute uh, stemmed out of or came out of a nonprofit animal protection organization called Mercy for Animals. And Mercy for Animals has annual brainstorming meetings at which they discuss basically ways to most effectively fight industrial animal agriculture. And they looked at the success of companies like Impossible Foods and Hampton Creek and Beyond Meat. And they said, look, those companies are using markets and food technology to do basically the same sort of thing that we are focused on as an organization. And we should figure out if there's room for a nonprofit organization to use markets and food technology to decrease the number of animals in industrialized animal agriculture. And obviously, there's ample room for a nonprofit organization in that space. Then they decided, should this be another program area at Mercy for Animals, or should it be its own organization? 
And since the Good Food Institute, since when you're looking at markets and food technology and the problems of industrialized animal agriculture, the two big questions are, how do we feed 9.7 billion people by 2050? And what do we do about climate change? Some of the other you know, also significant questions are things like the potential of zoonotic diseases, uh, the keeping antibiotics working by removing them from the food chain, uh, things like food contamination and so on. And Beyond Meat and Possible Foods, the other new companies in this space, they're attacking all of those issues. And animal protection is one from among these myriad issues, but it's only one. So at the Good Food Institute, we talk about all of them, but we do for focus somewhat disproportionately on the two questions that governments are asking, that impact investors are asking, that massive foundations are asking. So the food sustainability, food security piece, and then the environmental and especially the climate change piece. So they decided that a new organization made a tremendous amount of sense and they recruited me. I was policy director at Farm Sanctuary at the time uh, and they recruited me to launch and run the new organization, which I have been doing since October of 2015. We officially launched on February 1st of 2016 after spending some months getting it going. So we have not been around for long. We have been really humbled by the amount of support that we have gotten. Uh, Mercy for Animals has continued to play the role of sister organization. They've been uh, just incredibly generous in introducing us to people who they think would be excited about our mission. Uh, and also they gave us their development director, which was, well, they gave us one of their major gift officers to serve as our development director. So um, I've really been been pretty, pretty amazed. I mean, I, I've been doing animal protection for a really long time and farm animal protection specifically. So I was already aware of the degree to which there is a, a camaraderie uh, and a mission focus that transcends organizations. So at most of the organizations, the goal is not to promote one's own organization. The goal is to, as effectively and as efficiently as possible, combat industrialized animal agriculture. And there's a, a real spirit of camaraderie that transcends any of the sort of my organization you know, sort of uh, stuff that, that sometimes comes up in um, I think other movements. So that was already something that I had seen for decades. Uh, but boy, Mercy for Animals took it to the next level in the degree to which they've been been supportive of of GFI to the point of giving us, you know, one of their top development people. That's exciting. So how would we, you would say? How would you describe the core mission of GFI to? And this is, these are my words: disrupt uh, industrial animal agriculture and uh, change it from the inside out with or how would you categorize it maybe you know in a few words and then how do you hope to go about doing that is my question so we see it uh, when we originally started talking about it we were talking about it as disrupting animal agriculture mm -hmm. now we're talking about it as transforming animal agriculture and uh, the reason for that is that we do want to to make the change from the inside out uh, which is to say our goal is not you know, our goal is not disruption. Our goal is transformation. And one of the things that we want to do uh, is work with the ADMs and the Cargills and the Tyson Foods and the Hormels and the Smithfields. We would like to see a smo smooth transition um, away from industrialized animal agriculture and toward plant-based meat and clean meat alternatives. And we have been deeply encouraged 
by the degree to which the industry seems to be supportive of this concept. I mean, I remember um, even just before we launched, there's a magazine I've been reading, I think since it launched decades ago, called Meeting Place Magazine, and Meeting, M-E-A-T. It's a meat industry trade journal. And I pick up the, the January 2016 issue and the editor's letter. So the first thing people read, it has a cover of Frank Perdue on the, on the cover. And the first thing people read is the editor's letter. Um, and the editor is saying, look at what people like Bill Gates and Sergey Brin and Lee Kashing, the richest guy in Asia, look at what they look at how they're looking at meat supply. They see this as protein supply. And perhaps we should stop looking at ourselves as an industry that raises animals and start looking at ourselves as an industry that supplies protein to the masses. And the editor specifically called out Mark Post at Maastricht University, who's doing clean meat, sort of the clean meat pioneer, um, as well as the folks at Modern Meadow, who at the time were focused on clean meat, uh, and then also Beyond Meat and Possible Foods, Hampton Creek. And... I read that, um, a couple of other things. There's a, a guy who's really uh, been a meat industry veteran for a really long time, actually the founder of Meeting Place Magazine. In the 1990s, he was working at the American Meat in- Institute. His name is Dan Murphy. Um, and he was writing about water, water use and the fact that clean meat uses exponentially less water than animal-based meat, as does plant-based meat. And he was thinking maybe the meat industry should be getting into protein diversification. And then you look at Tyson Foods, and their very first investment of Tyson New Ventures is a 5% stake in Beyond Meat. And the stuff they're saying about it, they appear to be all in on plant-based meat. This is, uh, this is one of the reasons that I'm so incredibly enthusiastic about this space, and also one of the reasons that I think uh, talking about transformation rather than disruption. You know, the, the more we can involve the meat industry in the transformation, the, the easier and, and more smoothly it will all go. Yeah, because at it, 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 the end of the day, it's about their survival. If they want to continue as viable businesses and, and they also recognize there is something wrong with their current model, which I, which I think is forward looking of them. And I think that's, that's encouraging for sure. But if you look at the global meat industry, it's what um, 1.5 trillion dollar industry in the U.S. It's 200. Yeah, 200 billion in the United billion. States and yeah. well over a trillion globally. And I mean, I, I think um, I mean there's something there's something about raising and slaughtering animals that is subject to huge potential disruption. I mean, this is what the folks at, at Fair, uh, which is a, a project of the the Jeremy Collar Foundation. Um, I think it's F-A-I-R-R dot org on the web. And um, they're talking about this from a purely business standpoint. You know, you look at something like uh, PEDV, the porcine epidemic diarrhea virus, um, which wiped out, I think, hundreds of thousands of piglets a couple of years ago. Or you look at bird flu. And these are sort of light cases of these diseases. Um, but the possibility for disruption to your supply chain when you're raising and slaughtering animals is just colossal. So um, I think looking at the, you know, the, the, the need to diversify protein offerings um, looks really good in a sustainability report. And most of the executives in these companies are interested in doing things that, I mean, both because they, like everybody else, they care about the planet. Um, also from a straight business standpoint, uh, it's good to diversify proteins and it protects you against some of the disruptions that might happen in your supply chain.
So in, in some ways, we're in a bit of a race against time, right? So the population is expected to be 9.7 billion by 2050. As we just said, the global meat industry is a trillion, over a trillion, 200 billion in the U.S. But if you look at the, the alternatives in terms of what's available today, plant-based proteins is probably, what, 1.25% of the... No, overall. it's about 2.25%. Plant, plant-based meat is about 2.25%. And clean meat is zero at the moment because right, there's yeah. no product in the market. So the question is, how do we scale that up to the point where we, we can somehow meet this challenge in a timely way where we don't end up in 2050 and it's and we've not we've not made much of a dent in this industry. What's I guess my first, I guess my question is what's being done now to accelerate that? And of course that's part of what you're doing, but um, yeah, where do things stand today and and how fast do you think the needle's going to move and what's being done to do that? Yeah, I mean that's pretty much the entirety of what the Good Food Institute was founded to do. Uh, so we have an innovation department, a science and technology department, a policy department, a communications department, a corporate engagement department. Um, those are those are the, are sort of zones of operation, um, and we're doing a full court press. So as just one example, our scientists are putting together technological readiness assessments, and the technological readiness assessments say this is where we are now. We want uh, with plant-based meat, or this is where we are now with clean meat. We have a fairly expensive product that has not completely nailed the the taste profile of animal-based meat. And sort of just to step back for a second, so the, the the sort of brainstorm of the Good Food Institute is that consumers make their purchasing decisions on the basis of three factors: price, taste, and convenience. So you'll see polls, and they're encouraging. Consumers will say, I care about the environment when I make my purchasing decision, or I care about animal welfare when I make my purchasing decision. And then you see that 80% of Americans are eating fast food on a monthly basis. Half of Americans are eating fast food on a weekly basis. And you go to, if you go to any restaurant in the country, um, or any grocery store in the country, and you look at what people are actually eating and buying, 100% of people, every single person, is thinking about price, and they're thinking about taste, and of course, they're thinking, well, they're not thinking about convenience, but if it's not there, they're not buying it. Um, if you actually like pull stuff out of a cart or look at stuff on a menu and say, to what degree did anything other than price, taste, convenience, and maybe health, uh, to what degree did that factor in? In the vast majority of instances, it's not at all. So everything other than price, taste, and convenience is way, way down. Um, so then you think, so should we continue to try to convince people to change their decision-making paradigm? Or should we use the principles of behavioral economics and actually create the products that compete with industrialized animal agriculture on the basis of the factors that actually dictate consumer choice? So that's the brainstorm. We want to compete with industrialized animal products on the basis of price, taste, and convenience. And we look at what happened with plant-based milk. You know, 15 years ago, plant-based milk was zero. 15 years ago, plant-based milk was exactly where plant-based meat is today. And now it's 10%. So as a proportion of its market sector, it's 40 times the size of plant-based meat. Um, how do we do that with plant-based meat? And when we do that, we'll take more than a billion animals out of the industrialized animal agriculture s sector. Um, and I think we can skyrocket from there. You know, you look at what, you look at just recent announcements from ADM and Cargill and Tyson. Very, very encouraging uh, that these companies would like to go in that direction for a variety of reasons that we've already discussed. So... One of the things that our scientists are doing is they're saying, this is where we are, this is where we want to get. And where we want to get is plant-based meat and clean meat that biomimics 
well, for plant-based meat, it biomimics the taste of meat and is cheaper. For clean meat, it doesn't have to biomimic. It's the exact same product. So it's the exact same product, uh, but cheaper. And that's the goal. And what are the scientific hurdles that we need to clear in order to get there? And who are the people who can help us clear those scientific hurdles? So that's really the focus of our science team at the moment. And they're working with universities, and they're working with research institutions, and they're working with our policy department, uh, which is partly focused on getting funding and partly focused on clearing regulatory hurdles uh, for both of these products. Um, our entrepreneurship team is basically focused on you know, solving those problems as well, but uh, by getting as many really smart tissue engineers, synthetic biologists, food scientists, entrepreneurs uh, focused in this way. So we're going to colleges and universities, especially the top colleges and universities for things like tissue engineering and synthetic biology and entrepreneurship, and we're saying you can do a tremendous amount of good in the world and you can make a lot of money if you focus your career in this way. So a tissue engineer might have been going into medicine or a synthetic biologist might have been going into chemicals or an entrepreneur might have been going to make the next best widget the world has ever seen. Like we need anymore. Exactly, exactly. Um, and, and most people want their lives to be meaningful and they want to do well for themselves and their families. This is a great way to do that because this is an industry that basically doesn't exist you know, plant-based meat, a quarter of 1% of the meat industry, you know, that is within the margin of error of non-existence. Um, clean meat, currently zero, right? So these are industries that people in food tech believe are about to take off and we're convinced are about to take off. Um, and people who get involved now are on the ground floor. So that's the conversation that we're having at Harvard Business School and the MIT School of Management um, and all of the top science and tech and entrepreneurship schools. Uh, both to create top-level employees for all of these companies that are coming online and also to start more and more of these companies. Uh, and then from there, we've got our corporate engagement department, which is actually having the conversations with all of these big corporations as well as the fast food, restaurant, uh, fast food restaurants um, and the chain grocery stores. Um, and then we've got a communications department, which is basically supporting the companies and supporting GFI, um, and basically, it's sort of all hands on deck doing whatever we can think of to be um, as efficiently and as effectively usher in the plant-based meat and the clean meat market sectors as, as quickly as we possibly can. Great. So you're, you're kind of fostering this ecosystem that's just starting to take off. And, and, and even though we are in a race against time to try to get to 2050 and, and get us to a point where we can take a, we can ensure plant-based proteins as well as clean meat can take a sizable chunk of that global meat industry, it's not going to happen on its own. It's going to require help from all fronts. So let's start off at, say, plant-based proteins and what's happening in that space. There's been a lot of uh, focus from an investment standpoint. Um, I was reading something recently about how uh, plant-based proteins is the hottest segment of the food tech space right now with yeah. companies like uh, Impossible Foods, uh, Hampton Creek, Beyond Meat, and some of the non-dairy milk companies like Califia and Ripple Foods that are leading the way in terms of venture capital funding at least, which is encouraging because it, it means um, smart people with uh, who make big bets from a financial standpoint are looking at the market opportunity here and are betting on plant-based proteins. What, let's dive deeper into where things stand from, I know you mentioned price, taste, and convenience are the three factors. 
price on plant-based proteins, things are getting lower. Correct me if these numbers are wrong, but my understanding is plant-based proteins for a pound of that is cost about 11 to $12 for plant-based meat versus $5 for a pound of conventional meat. And when it comes to clean meat, that number is six thousand at the moment, or, or higher, possibly. Slightly less, but re- but re- but remember, I mean, the, the first iPhone cost three point four billion dollars. Mm-hmm. The first sequencing of the human genome cost billions of dollars. So the first of everything costs a lot of money. Yeah. But I mean, since since Mark Post created the first clean meat burger a few years back, the price has come down more than ninety nine percent, despite just a few million dollars having been invested. So. Um, not a lot of resources have been allocated, and nevertheless, the price has just absolutely plummeted. So the expectation of the people who are best poised to know is that clean meat will be on the market and expensive, so cost competitive with like, you know, grass-fed organic beef probably in about five years, and cost competitive with cheap chicken in about ten years, assuming that the venture capital is there. And for so plant-based proteins, it's an easier easier problem, assuming from a price standpoint. What's being done in terms of product innovation? I know most people are probably familiar with, or if not, should be familiar with the Impossible Burger or Beyond Meats Beyond Burger, which has been getting a lot of attention lately. But as far as I know, the we still haven't done enough when it comes to understanding plant proteins, and we still seem to be turning to things like soy and wheat and peas, and there's been talks about other beans and legumes that can be used. But do you have a better sense of what are the ingredients that are being researched? What about algae and seaweed and other protein possibilities? Where are we right now in terms of understanding ingredients and then converting those into viable products that can mimic um, the taste of uh, everything from chicken to red meat to potentially seafood? purely focused on plant-based proteins. We'll get to the clean meat, but let's uh, let's stick with plant-based proteins for now. Yeah, I mean, the first thing to say at the sort of 10,000 feet level, one of the things that both Pat Brown, the, uh, the, uh, the biomedical um, expert from Stanford University who, fo- who founded um, Impossible Foods, as well as Ethan Brown, no relation to Pat Brown, which is kind of interesting, um, who founded Beyond Meat, what both of them point out is that there is nothing in meat that cannot be created with plants. So meat is made up of lipids, it's made up of amino acids, it's made up of minerals and water. Um, We can replicate, we can biomimic that with plants, absolutely. And one of the things that both of those guys points out is that with animal-based meat, you've got an endpoint. You can't really improve on the cow or the chicken or the fish or whatever else. Um, Whereas with the plant-based products, you can get to biomimicry and then you can get even better And I think that's one of the lessons of plant-based milk as well. Um, It doesn't taste identical to animal-based milk, but it's gotten to 10% of the market sector because an awful lot of people like it even more. Um, And I think we can do that, and it's it's more expensive. So with plant-based meat, we can get it to less expensive. And if what people want is the exact same taste of beef or pork or chicken or whatever else, we can give them that, but we can also give them better. Um, And obviously, it's an inherently healthier product. It doesn't have the animal protein. It doesn't have the saturated fat at the same levels. Um, It does have complex carbohydrates and fiber, both of which don't exist in animal-based meats. So it was, it was pretty interesting. I, we are, when my scientists, when GFI's scientists about a year ago 
um, started to do the technological readiness assessment, started to dive into precisely where are we and where do we want to go with plant-based meat and clean meat, um, we assumed that plant-based meat would be a fairly simple problem and that clean meat would be the thing that would take a lot of effort to try to figure out. And what turned out to be, the tr be true is pretty much the opposite of that. And the reason for that, like everything we expected to have to tackle in clean meat has not changed at all. It's exactly the same. Um, and the reason for that is we've been doing exactly what we want to do with clean meat for decades in regenerative medicine. Um, so all we really have to do with clean meat is scale up. With plant-based meat, Bill Gates wrote this blog after he tried Beyond Meat's chicken strips. And he said, what I just tasted was not just a clever meat substitute. It is the future of food. And he wrote a blog titled The Future of Food. And in this blog, he says 92% of plant proteins have not yet been investigated for their capacity to turn them into plant-based meat. So the proteins haven't been optimized. Even soy and wheat, um, what we turn into plant-based meat for soy and wheat, that's not optimized soy and wheat. That's waste product that's turned into plant-based meat. So even those haven't been optimized for their capacity to turn them into plant-based meat. And then what's the best, best method? So far, we've used nothing but extrusion. And we haven't even tried, you know, for the vast majority of crops, we haven't seen what extrusion looks like. But there are a variety of other options for actually turning the products into plant-based meat. So it's been flabbergasting to us as we moved forward the degree to which we didn't know what we didn't know in plant-based meat. That hasn't happened to us in clean meat at all, which is pretty interesting. And if we had been having this conversation, you know, 10 years ago, it wouldn't have occurred to either of us that pea protein would be the next big thing. Like the only thing that had been turned into plant-based meat at that point was soy and wheat. Um, and we might have, you know, thought oats was going to be next or, you know, who knows. Um, and Pat Brown comes along and he focuses on, I'm sorry, Ethan Brown comes along and he focuses on pea protein and boom, now everybody's, well, well it's wheat and it's soy and it's pea. But it's probably also lupin. It's probably also lentils. It's probably also lots and lots of other proteins that could be turned into plant-based meat. And which one is going to have the best taste profile and which one is going to have the best cost profile, we don't know yet. And the sort of uh, aha experience for us was this is a tiny industry. Like the resources have not yet been brought to bear on this industry in the way that they are about to be brought to bear on this industry as it scales up. So there's a ton of incredibly exciting stuff happening. Um, probably Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods are doing you know, the most exciting work. And my understanding is that both companies are focused on the range of meats. And I think we're going to see really exciting things happen with those companies. But we also expect a lot more small companies that are similar to those companies, but focusing on other proteins. And we're also working very hard with research institutions and through our lobbyists in Washington, we're working very hard to bring more publicly accessible, more, more open access research into other proteins, both to optimize the proteins and to see what's the best way of turning them into something that biomimics meat. So the most cutting edge research probably right now is happening at maybe three companies. Um, would that be correct to say Impossible Foods, Beyond Meat, perhaps Hampton Creek as well? Um, what about, are we, are, is it starting to happen in universities? I know you've mentioned GFI getting involved in creating some sort of an open source database and you, you just talked about that a little bit. Where is that in the early stages or how far along are we? Like where is this new, where are these new discoveries going to come from? 
Well, there's some really exciting stuff happening happening at Wageningen University in the Netherlands right now. So yeah, they're they're doing some pretty interesting alternatives to extrusion, and they're also doing some pretty interesting um, protein profile and uh, and protein optimization work at that university. And that's um, the only open source work that's going on at the moment. Uh, but our lobbyist is meeting with people on both sides of the aisle. Um, everybody from the Freedom Caucus to the Progressive Caucus about the idea of taking some of the agricultural research budget as it exists right now and putting it into plant-based meat research and clean meat research. And because this is affirmative looking, it's not like taking anything away and it doesn't require more budget allocation. So one of the things that the, that the Trump budget has not cut is the Agricultural Research Service budget, which is over a billion dollars. And we're saying let's take 20 million of that and put it into plant-based meat research and clean meat research, which is open source and on university campuses. And you know it's early on, but uh, but our meetings so far with everybody from Cory Booker's office to Mike Lee's office, you know, opposite sides of the political spectrum in the Senate, same thing in the House. Like people like the, I mean, you know, it's America. We like capitalism. It's America. We like technology. So let's solve the world's problems with markets and technology. And so far, meeting with a lot of enthusiasm for that. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's smart because at the end of the day, this is this isn't a partisan issue. This is a, this is about innovation, about even if, even if you want to look at it from pure economic standpoint, it is about innovating a new changing industry that could potentially transform, as you put it, um, this trillion dollar meat industry from the inside out. And, and if you can be at the forefront of that and uh, perhaps even profit from it, why not? And, and that's exactly what America is about. So I think that's great that you're doing that. In terms of smaller companies and some of the startups that still don't have products on the market, um, there are, I've been reading about a lot of names like Clara Foods or New Wave Foods, or I think it's called Perfect Day today. It used to be Mufree, and now it's Perfect Day. Are any of these companies doing things that you think are going to be involving new new plant proteins that previously have never been used in products or um, you know have you seen anything exciting coming from them or perhaps other companies i still haven't heard of to the extent you can talk about it there is an overwhelming amount of exciting work that's being done and because we were talking about plant proteins i was focusing on some of the companies that are doing the most exciting stuff in plant proteins and certainly new wave foods is is among those exciting companies and i guess i should say we don't know what's happening in the food labs at cargill and ADM and Tyson and Hormel, like there are a lot of major food companies that spend an awful lot of money on R&D. And I'll bet they're doing stuff that they're just not publicizing, that they're gonna launch and it's gonna be really, really exciting. Uh, but yeah, New Way Foods is also doing plant-based, plant-based seafood and the stuff that they're doing is really exciting and innovative. They're focused on shrimp at the moment. They've been served in the Google cafeterias and um, Dominique Barnes, who's the CEO of New Wave Foods, recently gave a phenomenal presentation at the World Bank and she and Josh Tetrick um, and I think Pat Brown from Impossible, although maybe it was David Lee, uh, but they appeared on a panel and the president of the World Bank introduced them and talked about plant-based meat as the future of food. It was really pretty awesome. Um, and then in terms of cellular agriculture, so the folks at Perfect Day are working on basically creating dairy proteins, um, identical replication of dairy proteins, but it's acellular so they don't have to use tissue engineering. They're using the exact same process 
that folks have been using for insulin and for rennet for a really long time. So rennet created this way was approved in 1991 and almost all rennet. So anybody who's listening who eats cheese, uh, they are eating rennet that is produced in exactly this way. It's sort of, uh, it's, a, it's a method, it's called enhanced fermentation. Um, oftentimes, and Clara Foods is doing the exact same method of production for egg proteins. Did and then, egg whites, right? Are they working yeah. on it? Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then there's another company called Geltor, which is doing the same thing with collagen. And nobody's ever done that for collagen or dairy proteins or egg proteins. And all of those companies have raised millions of dollars. They've got significant venture capital ben- backing uh, from people who care about using food technology to solve big problems. And um, I could not be more excited or enthused about all of it. It's really, really, it's, uh, it's cutting edge stuff. Um, and it's actually for the, for the acellular products where they're using synthetic biology instead of tissue engineering, um, that, that stuff is going to start hitting markets in the next couple of years. I'm interrupting the interview to tell you about something that's really close to my heart. If you know me, nothing gets me more fired up than talking about how we need to make delicious, healthy food accessible and affordable for everyone. I strongly believe that healthy food should not be limited to rich people who live in big cities, and we largely have government subsidies to blame for that. But I'm not going to get into the details of that right now. Instead, I'm very excited to tell you about a cool company that's changing the game when it comes to making healthy food affordable and accessible to everyone nationwide. Thrive Market is my favorite online market. Yes, I'm a happy customer because they sell my favorite healthy products at 25 to 50% below retail price and ship it straight to my door. The reason they are able to provide such great prices is because Thrive Market cuts out all the middlemen and works directly with the brands. They pass all the savings on to their customers who pay a $60 annual membership fee to join their community. So it's similar to Costco, but better. Thrive Market has all the top healthy vegan and organic products that I usually get from a grocery store, but Thrive Market sells them at wholesale prices. On this podcast, we are focused on making food choices that nourish us without starving the planet. Thrive Market makes that incredibly easy by allowing you to search for products based on dietary preferences or values. You can filter your search based on categories like non-GMO, no artificial ingredients, BPA-free, vegan, gluten-free, sustainably sourced, and many more. What I find even cooler is that for every person who becomes a member with Thrive Market, they donate a membership to a low-income family, teacher, or veteran. Because I love their wholesale prices, I ask them for something special for Eat for the Planet listeners. Thrive Market is offering an extra 25% off your first order, plus free shipping. I think that's a pretty cool deal. Think about it. If you normally spend $100 on groceries, at Thrive Market, you'd only spend $50 to $75 on any given order, and then today you can save an additional 25% off that. If you're like me, you'll probably go to the grocery store about once or twice a week. So why not save on time and money and get the special deal on Thrive Market today straight from your home? Just go to thrivemarket.com slash eatfortheplanet to get extra 25% off plus free shipping. You can also find the link in the show description and in the show notes for this episode. The URL is thrivemarket.com slash eatfortheplanet and you get 25% off your first order plus free shipping by becoming a member today. 
So, I mean, I guess that's a good segue into uh, tissue engineering and, and cellular agriculture and um, clean meat, as you put it. So I was talking to Prince Khalid um, from KVW Ventures recently, and he has a very optimistic view of things when it comes to clean meat and it being the solution to factory farming and transforming factory farming. He said with what he's seen and what he's understood of it, he thinks that in 10 years um, we will be competitive, if not you know, getting rid of factory farming thanks to clean meat. On the other hand, um, Patrick Brown, who you mentioned from Impossible Foods recently in an interview, I believe, at the TechCrunch mentioned that uh, clean meat was the stupidest idea ever expressed. Can you separate fact from fiction here? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess uh, there's so much. I mean, there's an awful lot that you can unpack in this whole discussion. Um, the main thing is I really, I really think that people who are focused on one solution um, I love Pat Brown. There's no company I'm more excited about than Impossible Foods. I mean, I'm equally excited about Beyond Meat and Memphis Meats and a bunch of other companies, but certainly no company I'm more excited about. Um, and Pat personally has done just, you know, there's nobody who's done more uh, to get people thinking about the solutions to climate change issues and food security issues being in alternative proteins. Um, but it's, you know, it's obviously not helpful. Uh, if uh, if Pat is is uh, being unkind to people who are looking at alternative technologies, and, and I guess I would point out, so the two people who are on the forefront of the clean meat movement, um, one of them is Mark Post. He's the guy who got the million dollars from Sergey Brin to do the first clean meat burger, and Mark Post was previously a tenured professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. He's got both an MD um, and a PhD in tissue engineering, and he's a professor of tissue engineering at Maastricht University, which is one of the top medical schools in the world. He could be doing anything else, and he would certainly be getting a lot more accolades and a lot fewer questions if he were focused on tissue engineering for human medicine instead of being focused on clean meat. Uh, similarly, the other guy, Uma Valetti, is a former tenured medical school professor at the University of Minnesota a Mayo Clinic-trained cardiologist, head of both the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association for the Twin Cities. And he has quit his position and moved to the Bay Area to be all in on Memphis Meats because he sees this as absolutely the future. Nobody knows more about the technology of clean meat than these two guys. And a lot of other extraordinarily impressive tissue engineers and extraordinarily impressive thinkers um, who are all in on clean meat. And I will say that uh, when we launched the Good Food Institute, uh, we launched it on the basis of looking at what the plant-based companies had done. Uh, and we were perfectly content to be an organization that promotes plant-based food technology. Uh, there is plenty to do in that space. Uh, but once we started looking at clean meat, and I, I hired um, two scientists so far. We have three scientists at GFI. We're hiring a couple more. Um, and I've hired two scientists who are experts in recombinant proteins, experts in this sort of technology. And I said to them when they started, um, one of them started a year ago pretty much now. One of them started last November. And we've got a third scientist who's a former mechanical engineer at Boeing. She's an expert in, in processes and getting things you know, through to fruition. And those three have been doing a deep dive into the clean meat technology. And I said from the outset, 
if at some point we decide this isn't where we should be spending our time and resources, if we decide that this isn't a viable technology, you know, we should not be working on it, right? We should be working on the stuff that we actually think is going to transform agriculture away from the industrialized use of animals. And as they dive in and as they learn more, they get more and more excited. Uh, so I just respectfully disagree with Pat Brown and, and uh, would be delighted to sit down with him and actually have an in-depth conversation um, because my fear is that he looked at the science when he was deciding what he wanted to do back in 2011 um, and maybe hasn't kept up as much on what's been happening over the last you know, six years since he first decided that it wasn't, wasn't a viable option. But I mean, if you read that full quote, um, he says uh, that cows are particularly efficient, I believe, which is, you know, certainly clean meat is a lot more efficient. Um, he says, why hasn't regenerative medicine gotten the price down, which is, you know, there's a pretty obvious answer to that, that as well. There's a lot about creating a liver that's not going to be rejected by the human body that we don't have to replicate if we're doing clean meat for, you know, for the meat industry. So um, we actually um, have recently released a clean meat mind map. Um, so if, if somebody just Googles Good Food Institute and Clean Meat Mind Map, uh, we walk people through the key areas that are going to have to be developed in order for clean meat to be commercialized. Um, and they're engineering questions. They're not scientific questions. So um, remains to be seen, but we get more and more excited and optimistic about the prospects for clean meat being cost competitive with animal-based meat the deeper we get into the technology. Yeah, I don't think I don't think he contests the technology, and I don't, most people understand that that is it's a viable way to produce meat. Um, what's changed or evolved recently in terms of scaling up that process? Because that seems to be how do you scale it up, bring down the cost, and then obviously there's a few other hurdles like getting consumers to accept it and getting regulators to understand it and getting health experts to see what the long-term impact would be on on human populations what's what's evolved or has anything changed recently have we learned something we didn't in the last few years because all of this seems to be happening really fast and to some people who just read articles on the internet could come arrive at the conclusion that oh, this is just a lot of hype there isn't anything on the market yet probably won't be till 2020 is this going to cost a large sum of money, which most people will not be able to afford? I guess my question is, how are you? How is the plan to scale this up? And what's changed from a technology standpoint that's enabling that? Well, I mean, remember, um, so Pat Brown founded Impossible Foods in 2011. They had their first product at the end of 2016. Um, and it was in a you know half a dozen restaurants in 2016. Um, Ethan Brown started Beyond Meat in 2009. They had their first product, their chicken strips, in a limited number of Whole Foods in 2012. So uh, to say that Memphis Meats is going to start their company in 2015 and they're going to have products for sale um, five years later, that's about the same trajectory as the food tech-based, plant-based meat companies. It's actually, if it, you know, assuming it works out, that's actually a little quicker uh, than Impossible Foods. And you look at, it cost $1.2 million a pound um, in 2012. It costs about $4,500 a pound now. 
and the, I mean, everything is coming down. So the price of media is coming down. They're maximizing cell lines in a way that's working. Um, the price of everything comes down. And I mean, the, it's, it's a pretty intuitive process, really, to think about what it looks like, what, what economies of scale are going to look like. So you think about if you're going to create chicken or pork or beef or whatever else, you have to grow massive amounts of crops. And according to the World Resources Institute, the most efficient meat is chicken. It takes nine calories in the form of crops to get one calorie back out from a chicken. Eight of those, that's 800% food waste. So we're all really upset about 40% food waste. There is an inherent thing in eating meat that you have 800% food waste. You throw away eight calories for every calorie that you consume in the best case scenario. So you're growing all those crops. You're shipping those crops to a feed mill. You're operating the feed mill. You're shipping the feed to the farm. You're operating the farm. You're shipping the animals to the slaughterhouse. You're operating the slaughterhouse. So there's the inherent inefficiency. There are also all of these extra stages of production, which in addition to the fact that they take a lot of resources and create a lot of pollution, they also cost a lot of money. So it's definitely not you know, absolute that we're going to be able to get the, the nutrient bath for cell multiplication to a reasonable cost. It's not absolute that we're going to be able to create the immortalized and optimized cell lines for creating you know, chicken or pork or beef or whatever at a cost competitive way. And we also have to clear the scaffolding hurdle and we have to clear the bioreactor scale up hurdle. Uh, but all of that is being worked on simultaneously. And everybody who is, has really dived into it, and this is what they're doing, um, everybody's super optimistic. And um, because, I mean, I, I have been saying to the GFI scientists, tell me if you become pessimistic. Tell me what the problems are. But, I mean, I, I'll grant that there's some vested interest, like this is something we're super enthused about and we want to see work, so maybe we have some vested interest in it. Yeah. Um, there's a, a guy who works for McKinsey in London. Um, who is diving into these technologies and he's talking to all the companies in the plant-based and the clean meat space and he's trying to figure out, you know, how viable is this? Um, and then he's briefing me, telling me, you know, wh where his thinking is. Um, and I said, I really want to know, you know, is this viable? Is this not viable? And he started this endeavor um, about seven or eight months ago and he's been doing it pretty consistently since then. And he also, I saw him at, uh, at a conference earlier this month in Haifa, the Modern Agriculture Foundation pulled together a conference focused on clean meat. He's getting more and more enthusiastic and says that, uh, you know, he's talking to the naysayers and he's talking to the optimists um, and more and more he's becoming optimistic the more he dives in and the more he learns. Wow. I, I would, uh, for people who, you threw a couple of um, terms in there that people may not be familiar with but so I would highly encourage folks to check out the um, the clean meat mind map that you released I know it just came out today I just glanced at it but some of the things you mentioned I, I know were covered in, in more detail in that paper in case uh, people are interested in diving into the science of this and exploring it further so Memphis Meats for example has compared to companies in the plant-based space as you mentioned have been around for a few years Hasn't Memphis Meats hasn't gotten the level of investment yet that those other companies have. And I think, is that one of the reasons? I think once that next round of investment comes in, then scaling up just becomes, um, is, that, is that the next hurdle that they're trying to overcome to, or, and other companies in the space are trying to overcome so that they can put in the R&D money and, and then slowly start to tackle all the other hurdles, which we'll get to next? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the I think the funding is going to be an issue, and Memphis Meats hasn't tried yet. So nobody nobody has yet tried to raise money and been unable to raise money. Um, and we look at what happened with uh, with Perfect Day and Clara. I believe they both now closed their A rounds. Um, so those are similar technologies, not identical, a little bit easier. Um, but um, but yeah, nobody's tried and failed yet. But yes, it, it all of this and certainly creating economically competitive products are going to require that the venture capital money be there. Um, so I imagine Memphis Meats will have to raise their Series A, their Series B, their Series C. Um, so too Mosa Meats and Super Meat and Meet the Future and the other companies in this space. But um, there are a bunch of companies in this space and, and a, lot of, uh, a lot of excitement around it. And your conversations with investors, what is, um, I know you work with everyone in the space, so where do you think their heads are at when it comes to clean meat versus plant-based meat? Are there investors out there that are looking at both and, and looking at putting in money in both to help support this larger ecosystem that you're focused on? Or are we seeing camps develop <laughs> and some folks thinking, well, I'm going to put my money in plant-based protein because there's already products and the science is clearer and um, there's possibility scale right now. Uh, versus something else. I think everybody who is invested in clean meat is also invested in plant-based meat. That's encouraging. Yeah, but but the reverse is not true. Um, so there are certainly, I mean, the standard venture capital model of we want to get at, you know, we want to exit in three yeah. to seven years. Um, that is a lot more likely with plant-based meat than with clean meat. And to the degree that venture capitalists are, you know, venture capital is a risky business inherently. Um, but uh, an awful lot of the venture capital funds, especially some of the strategic, some of the venture capital funds that are coming from more established companies, um, they're oftentimes sort of picking winners. They're waiting until companies are fairly significantly revenue positive um, before they buy in. And clean meat is not going to be revenue positive for a while. Um, so we're definitely looking for impact investors who care about the, what their investment is going to do for things like climate change and antibiotic resistance, which is, I think, very under-discussed as a reason to be investing in both plant-based meat and clean meat. And the two things people discuss are climate change and then sometimes environmentalism writ large um, and sustainability slash food security. But you want to scare, and you know, you, One green, green Planet has done a lot of great work on this, but boy, the possibility of antibiotics no longer working yeah. because of subtherapeutic prophylactic antibiotic use in farm animals is terrifying. Mm -hmm. And plant-based meat and clean meat, they're both solutions to that problem. Wow. So, so let's talk about some of the other hurdles with clean meat. Let's just you know, address them to the extent which work is already being done or planned whether through GFI or some of the companies that are in the space. A big big issue, obviously, is going to be consumer perception, which, from my perspective, and correct me if I'm, I'm completely off base here, is I don't think it's a big issue. Uh, I personally feel you're going to have, uh, I hate to call them factories, but you're going to have these facilities that are producing meat in a way that's completely transparent to the end consumer, it's way better than anything that exists today. Uh, the idea that it is processed, I'm sure you can overcome that with um, with transparency, with not with with information sharing, and you know some smart advertising. I'm sure. So to me, that's less of a concern, and that that's the number one. Um, and the other two ones I would love to touch on are the regulatory hurdles with clean meat potentially. 
if any, and um, and thirdly, the health and nutrition. To what extent? So I know it's a, it's a three-part question. Really. So that's three big issues right in a row. And you so, have five minutes for it. I'm kidding. Perfect. <laughs> you can go for it. Take your time. Um, so I agree with you on the issue of consumer acceptance. I mean, the worst polls in terms of consumer acceptance right now um, still indicate over 50% consumer acceptance, even on the basis of a, a very shallow presentation of the benefits of clean meat. Um, once we get the price points right, um, and think about the fact that plant-based meat right now, probably a lot of listeners are eating veggie burgers on occasion. Maybe they're eating veggie hot dogs. Maybe they're eating veggie nuggets. And this is $500 million a year, this industry. So it's a quarter of 1% of the meat industry, so it's tiny. Uh, but nevertheless, that's a legitimate market sector with a whole bunch of companies that are a part of it. So then you think about 50%, that's $100 billion a year. So even the most, per, the, the most pessimistic um, of the consumer surveys right now still indicate a colossal market sector uh, for clean meat. But I also agree with you. Uh, right now, people are eating meat not because of how it's produced. They're eating meat despite how it's produced. So, And most people either don't know, and oftentimes they don't want to know, um, and the meat industry certainly isn't at the moment like drawing attention to it. But once you have two products, and one of, them's plant, one of them is, is clean meat, and one of them is industrialized animal agriculture, then people don't have a disincentive to know about industrialized animal agriculture, and they're making an eyes-wide-open decision. Um, I don't see clean meat having any trouble convincing people that they should shift from what we know is happening on farms, what we know is happening in slaughterhouses. This is the one product that they're actually passing laws to make it illegal to find out what happens. Yeah. You know, there, there aren't laws against going undercover in a, you know, in a uh, retirement home or a daycare or whatever else. There are laws to make it illegal to go undercover on these farms and in these slaughterhouses. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got something that basically looks like a meat brewery, right? It is, a, it is clean, it is antiseptic. All of these companies, the CEOs of all of these companies say they're gonna live stream the production practice on the internet. So you've got transparency, which Americans care about, and you've got places that are locked up like Fort Knox and it's illegal to go there. Um, and then, you know, in the transparent process, it's cleaner, it's safer, it's kinder, um, and it doesn't have all of the other myriad harms of industrialized animal agriculture. So assuming the price points are right, I don't think the consumer acceptance thing is a problem at all. Um, the regulatory thing we hope isn't a problem. And one of the great things um, about the regulatory process with regard to clean meat is there are all kinds of normative advantages to clean meat that governments care about. So the government cares about keeping antibiotics working. The government cares about, well, most governments care about climate change. You know, there are now 192 governments uh, that are signed on to the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, so just uh, Nicaragua, Syria, and the United States that haven't. Um, although, you know, California and New York and a lot of communities and states are going to sign on sort of on their own. They're just going to commit to keeping climate change under two degrees Celsius. So this is a solution to those problems. It's a solution to food security. It's a solution to drought. Um, so we go into the regulatory discussion with a really strong normative argument for approval. And at the Good Food Institute, our policy director has already looked at about 15 countries to figure out um, what the countries are, where the pathway forward for regulatory approval and oversight um, is going to be the smoothest. Um, and our expectation is there'll be a little bit of a sort of race to the top. So maybe Israel and the United States um, will approve clean meat 
uh, maybe Israel, the United States, and China, because China now is sort of going to be by itself um, in the Paris Climate Agreement and making positive strides to meet their obligations, and this is one way to do that. Um, so I think the regulatory approval process, it'll happen country by country, but I think we'll, um, a few countries will agree because they'll see the normative values, um, and then a lot of other countries, if not all other countries, will fall in line behind. So um, cautiously very optimistic um, about the regulatory approval process. Um, in the United States, in Israel, and Taiwan, it seems like it's going to be very, very easy. Um, the current structure um, is set for approval and regulatory oversight. Some countries it might be a little bit more difficult, but we'll see. Um, and then the third question was, I've forgotten. Health and nutrition. How, what's being done to ensure that uh, clean meat is um, better than, uh, I mean, some of it's inherently better. You don't have the, the hormones and the antibiotics that's added on. Um, but what about the nutritional, nutrition prof profile of these um, products that are made in um, meat breweries, as you put it? Yeah, there's a little bit of debate about that. Um, I am in the camp that says um, this is a healthier product because it's cleaner. So there was that amazing column from Nicholas Kristof mm -hmm. a year or two ago after Johns Hopkins University uh, tested chicken samples and found the active ingredient in Prozac and Benadryl. They found arsenic. They found antibiotics. They found all of this stuff in chicken. Um, and Kristoff, uh, I think he ends the, the, the ends the column with something like, um, this, whole, this whole Johns Hopkins research has made me want to eat a, a uh, Prozac-tainted chicken. Uh, so I can feel better, which I thought was pretty awesome. But um, so the, the inherent advantages, no drug residues because no drugs, no antibiotic residues, and no need for antibiotics. Um, and then, of course, no bacterial contamination. So according to the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, there are tens of millions of cases of foodborne patho pathogens from meat making Americans sick every single year. There are more than 100,000 hospitalizations. There are thousands of deaths. All of that food contamination stuff goes away with clean meat. So there's that inherent advantage. Um, I'm in the camp that says we should leave it there. Um, this is a product for people who want to eat meat. Um, and a lot of people want to eat meat, and they understand the risks. If somebody wants to avoid the saturated fat, if they want to avoid the cholesterol, if they want complex carbohydrates and, and uh, fiber, none of which comes in meat, they should eat something else. Mm -hmm. This is a product for the people who want to eat meat. And the point at which we start creating a healthier product is the point at which it becomes niche and the point at which a lot of people, even if it's cheaper, they don't eat it. There's some really fascinating research that's been done that says, as just one example, if you label a product vegan and it's the exact same product, sales plummet by 70%. Um, and the speculation is either A, uh, that people think, well, I'm not vegan, so that's not for me, um, or they think vegan, it must be lacking something. I think, uh, you know, we don't care if clean meat fails because people are eating plant-based meat and a whole foods plant-based diet. Like, I don't care if plant-based meat and clean meat fail because people are eating a whole foods plant-based diet. These products are not for people who are happy eating, you know, beans and quinoa. These products are a replacement for industrialized animal agriculture. So I feel, I feel pretty strongly that we should stay focused on that and just create the exact same thing, but cleaner and better. At least let, let that get, get that market, get that accepted by the market, let consumers understand what that is. And then of course, there'll be companies that come around and do vitamin infused uh, 
clean meat and who knows what. Yeah, no, there, there are definitely, like uh, Dr. Valetti, um, who is the CEO of Memphis Meats, and he is a cardiologist, and one of the things he wants to do is, is tweak the fat pro- profile um, so that heart disease deaths go down, and it's a, it's a heart-healthy meat. Um, and a lot of people in the clean meat movement uh, disagree with everything, not everything, but disagree with some of what I just said and said, you know, consumers, consumers, if it, as long as it tastes the same, as long as it is the same, you know, but if the, if the amino acid profile is better or the heme ratio is better or, you know, whatever else, we can, tr- we can tweak the nutritional content so that it's better for people and it'll still be the exact same product. And they point out that, uh, for example, um, grass-fed beef has a different nutritional profile. You can change the nutritional profile of eggs based on what you feed to the chickens, and it also changes the nutritional profile of the meat. So they see, they see it as basically that, um, or a variant on that, um, and that's their argument. But I, I really just think if somebody wants a healthier product, eat something else. I think it's, it's going to be interesting um, choices to be made by the companies to going down the line, because you're, you're solving a huge problem. You're potentially transforming one of the most not one, the most destructive industry on the planet, which is industrialized animal agriculture with hopefully, uh, or transforming it from the inside out with this new product. But then how far, how far down the line do you go? Do you improvise on it so that it then addresses all the health problems? How do you feel selling a product that potentially is solving one problem but continues to uh, contribute to the global health crisis? So... You know, I think these are going to be fascinating things to grapple with. I don't think it's the biggest problem at the moment, but nevertheless, I think it's an intellectual one. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it, we, we hear from a lot of people who say, well, we should just be promoting plant-based, whole foods, plant-based diet. Which you should be, of course. Yeah, no, and, and, but, but we've been doing that for decades, yeah. right? Um, or we should just promote plant-based meat and not clean meat. Why are we you know, promoting clean meat? People don't need to eat meat. It's not healthy. And, uh, and sure, you know, if, if those things are so successful that clean meat or plant-based meat are, are not successful, hallelujah. Uh, but the whole concept of GFI, and I think it's right, our theory of change, um, is that we can use behavioral economics to basically transform the food system. And, you know, the, the polls that are accurate, the polls that actually ask people what they're eating, um, indicate that about 2% of Americans are vegetarian and even fewer Americans are vegans. So um, there's some meat reduction efforts going on, but everybody cares about taste. Everybody cares about price and convenience is obviously a dispositive factor for most people who don't go that far out of their way, especially for grocery shopping. Um, so if we can compete on the basis of those factors, which we absolutely can with plant-based meat and almost certainly can with clean meat, um, that can do the tremendous amount of good that everybody involved in fighting against industrial anim- industrialized animal agriculture, whether it's for environmental reasons or global poverty reasons or health reasons or animal welfare reasons, you know, this is something we've all been fighting against so, so hard, trying to convince people to change their decision-making paradigm. Uh, this is a way to not have to do that and to have the same and, you know, probably a much bigger effect. So we should at least give it a go. I agree. I mean, I, I don't disagree with that at all. And I think if you take a step back and if you really want to change the world, you have to tell people, choose, embrace whole plant-based foods. You have to do that. Replace certain products that you have uh, that you now have uh, animal-free alternatives to. It could be mayo. It could be cheese. It could be uh, sausage or bacon that's now made plant-based and hopefully down the line clean meat as well. And then moderate your meat consumption. And when you 
that's if you choose to not give up meat. And when you moderate your meat consumption and reduce it, what you choose to replace that with is kind of up to you. And the more options out there for people that are less destructive to the planet and potentially your health, hallelujah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, One Green Planet, the, you guys have been an absolute leader um, on all of these technologies. And it's, it's just it's awesome to see. Um, and I couldn't agree more. And I, I think it's worth people remembering with, with plant-based milk, which is now, again, the market sector is 40 times the size of the plant-based meat as a proportion of its market sector. Um, and why did people switch to plant-based milk? In the vast majority of cases, it's not ethics. It's not the environment. Maybe it's a little bit health, but it's, uh, it's, it's a better tasting product and the price points are reasonable. Um, so we need to replicate that and we need to recognize that according to surveys, about 90% of people who are consuming plant-based milk are also consuming animal-based milk. Like these are not, you know, the vegan community is not responsible for the success of plant-based milk. And, you know, I went vegan 30 years ago and the, the plant-based, you know, even just 15 years ago, there was no market sector for plant-based milk. And now it's colossal. We can absolutely do the same thing for plant-based meat. And that will make a huge positive difference in the climate in terms of sustainability, in terms of taking antibiotics out of the food supply, in terms of taking GMO grains out of the food supply. Uh, it's just all the stuff we care about when we care about decreasing industrialized animal agriculture. This is a way to have a colossal positive effect. And, and you're, as being a, you're a 30 year vegan, I'm, I've just been doing it for seven years. Uh, I don't think you're saying we don't need more vegans. We're saying we need all of it, right? And if some people want to eat meat, they're going to choose to eat that. And we just have to offer them better alternatives uh, and better alternatives that don't involve the animal. Right. And, and I think vegans need to, vegans and, and sort of anybody who cares about industrialized animal agriculture, which most vegans do, um, should be thinking about this not in terms of what do I want to eat. Maybe you don't want to eat clean meat, but that's fine. We've got you. We don't care what you eat. Um, you know, maybe you don't want to eat plant. And we'll pummel you with facts to keep you on that exactly. uh, road. <laughs> so we'll do that at One Green Planet. Yeah, thank you. And uh, but but so, I mean, I think I think people should think a little strategically and not just what is perfect. You know, maybe a whole foods plant-based diet is perfect. Uh, but if we can get, you know, 10% of people um, or 100% of people eating 10% fewer animal products, that's the same as getting 10% of the population to go vegan. Um, and maybe it's easier. And, you know, with these products, are these products that you're going to eat? You know, who cares? You're already vegan. Uh, but are these products that your friends and your family who are not already vegan might eat? I mean, with clean meat, absolutely. With plant-based meat, probably. So I guess my last question for you is, what is your vision? What is your vision for the year 2050? If you can look ahead and the work that you're doing now all turns out the way you expect them, expect it to. These companies scale up, provide the products out there, this 0.25% um, market segment that you find for plant-based meats explodes and goes beyond the one-third expectations. What's your best case scenario? 2050, what kind of world do you want to see and what, if the work that you're doing succeeds? So if, uh, if plant-based meat is X and clean meat is Y, we want X plus Y to equal 100% by 2050. And all that's required is starting now 20% growth on an annual basis in terms of closing the gap, um, which is something that plant-based milk did. Um, so plant-based meat needs to do that and then it needs to continue to do that. And I think we can do it quite a bit more quickly than that. Like I, I have this vision, I'll bet there are like 100 people in the Chinese government, um, maybe more, maybe fewer, um, who if they 
learned about this and got really excited about the possibility of China being the global leader on climate change and the global leader on the Paris Climate Agreement and looked at what Chatham House is saying about how it will be literally impossible, scientifically impossible, to meet our obligations under Paris unless animal product consumption goes down. If they devoted some of the billions of dollars that they put into agricultural research, some significant proportion of that, into creating the best possible plant-based meat and getting clean meat to, mar to market at reasonable price points, you know, this could happen in 15 or 20 years, you know, not, you know, not by 2050. And there are other scenarios that get us there, like ADM or Cargill putting massive amounts of money into this, Tyson putting massive amounts of money in this, into this, the US government, a proportion of its uh, agricultural research service budget, which is over a billion dollars into these technologies. So uh, I do think it is a reasonable and not particularly aggressive scenario to say that from we can go from 0.25% to 0.3% to you know 0.4% and so on so 20% per year which you know we're still only 1% in 5 or 6 years uh, but the you know multiply each year by 1.2 and by 2050 we're at 100% plant-based meat and clean meat. I think that's absolutely doable, and I think there are a lot of scenarios in which we get there a lot more quickly. And I think the fact that governments care about sustainability, governments care about water use and drought, governments care about antibiotics, governments care about climate change, um, getting some governments and some large impact-based foundations um, and impact-based investors all in on these technologies could absolutely make it happen quicker. I think it's a no-brainer, and with, uh, with the work that you're doing at the forefront of this movement and the kind of enthusiasm I see in the food tech world and in the investment world right now, these aren't problems that we, these aren't options for us. We have to solve these problems. And if changing the way we produce food and transforming uh, the destructive industrial animal agriculture industry is a possibility in the very near future, why wouldn't we put time and energy and money into doing this? So I think the work you're doing is incredibly important um, and incredibly timely. And I think if we, we already started off, but I think if you continue at this pace and accelerate it, I think you're right. It can happen before 2050. So this isn't just uh, this isn't just imagining some utopia. I think it's it's practical and real. It's happening now. Yeah, it's absolutely practical, absolutely real. So, and it's uh, it's awesome to be on the journey with uh, with you and One Green Planet. Thank you, and I'm happy to be part of this with you and to have you today. Can't thank you enough for taking the time to to be so candid, open about um, discussing the the hurdles, the opportunities, as well as some of the real practical hard work that's going to have to be done by the scientific community, the investment community, the media, um, as well as activists out there who are all playing a role in changing the way people eat and, and as you put it, transforming the food industry from the inside out. There's a lot of work to be done, but the future is bright. Well, great. I'll end with that. Thanks, Bruce. I appreciate this. Thank you, Nell. It's absolutely my pleasure. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFT. 
www.ntp.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.